Good morning, everybody. It's lovely to see those of you whose faces I can see on screen and to see that long list of very familiar names. Welcome in particular to anybody who's not been to one of these sessions before. Um, apparently, we're going global because we have had some international interests. So um, hopefully I won't bore, bore people who are, are logging in, to, in internationally with too much UK uh, law. What we like to do at the beginning of these sessions or our habit is for me to just touch on a couple of things that are happening in the world of employment law um, a lot alongside today's main topic. So very, very briefly, um, you may not be aware because it only got announced on Friday afternoon that in terms of uh, being able to claim statutory sick pay, if you've got um, a certain number of employees, you can claim reclaim statutory sick pay from the government at the moment if your employees are off with COVID. That is going to get ended on the 30th of September. So the tap, if you like, from Westminster is being turned off. Um, so just be aware um, that the financial impact is going to start hitting um, businesses of that from the 30th of, of uh, the end of this month. Um, in terms of cases starting to go to tribunal, we are starting to see the judges having to grapple with the impact of COVID. Things like furlough, health and safety cases under Section 100, which I know we've discussed a number of times. And the way I would characterise the way that they're dealing with those cases is that they are being very sensible. So if they are dealing with an employer who has tried their best to follow all the government guidance and do things the right way, then they're not tending to wrap them over the knuckles as well with um, employment tribunal cases. Contrast that obviously with employers who've cocked a snook at all the guidance and trying to do the right thing. They're the ones that are much more likely to fall foul of some of the provisions. So that's how I would sort of broadly characterise what's going on um, in those first cases that we're seeing around things like furlough and health and safety. One case I would draw your attention to, because it potentially broadens out the coverage of our UK law, is a case involving the Nationwide Building Society in relation to associative discrimination. So you might remember the Coleman case, which um, confirmed that it doesn't have to be the employee's disability that is the cause of discrimination. It can be, for example, a family member. And because they associate with that person, they can then suffer discrimination. And up until now, we thought that that only really applied to direct discrimination. So because of my disabled child, I have been treated less favourably by my employer. But this case extends it to indirect discrimination. And it's interesting because I think it's got an overlap for hybrid working and returning to the office from COVID as well. So this employee had worked for many years for the building society from home, although not really from home because she did attend the office three days a week. So to my mind, it's hybrid working. And good reports, her supervision had always been fine of other members of staff, um, was otherwise a, a, you know, a good employee. 
and there was a policy decision made to move away from um, that way of working and forcing her in effect to come back to the office. So when there was a bit of a reorganisation, lo and behold, it was her who got chosen for redundancy. And so she claimed discrimination. And essentially what the court did is look at the EC legislation and case law um, and the purpose behind that of obviously outlawing discrimination in the workplace and decide that we needed to read our Section 19 of the Equality Act in the light of all of that, thereby extending our law to associative discrimination um, in these sorts of circumstances. So uh, the tribunal gave really quite short shrift to the employer for having a closed-minded attitude to the whole working from home thing. And, you know, there was no evidence that her supervision of staff, of staff had been problematic. So when the employer tried to argue that they could justify the discrimination, the legitimate aim that they were um, following was about, you know, supervision of junior staff, the tribunal said, but there's no evidence that she hasn't successfully been doing that from on a remote basis anyway so I think it it just shows us how some employers who are quite fixed about everybody back to the office now and we're not going to tolerate flexibility and home working and things I think are going to find it quite difficult if they haven't got evidence to back up those kind of assertions uh, when it comes to the tribunal so lots and lots of um, food for thought there so on to today's topic before I sat down and thought about what, what am I going to write about today? What, what are we going to talk about? I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll look back through on my blue shelves behind me. You can see there's a, a pile of, of magazines. The Employment Lawyers Association publishes a monthly magazine. I will have a look back. I think there's about 10 years worth over there. I'll have a look back over the last 10 years and draw out any themes um any cases articles things that have, there have been around this topic area over that period and quite quickly leafing through i became very aware that there wasn't that much coverage of this area within that magazine it showed me how in recent years we've been focusing quite a lot on things like Me Too, Black Lives Matter and obviously that's generated lots of attention in particular areas so perhaps we've neglected um, this subject perhaps, I don't know, is that true in your organisation? Have you focused you know, training on sexual harassment for example rather than more broadly? Um, it showed me that there hasn't actually been a huge amount of case law in the employment tribunals. Um, I will be telling you um, some themes and um, the sort of direction of travel of lots of the case law. But, you know, by the time I'd taken out the gay cake case, which is quite famous now that went all the way through the courts, which was a service provision rather than an employment case, um, and I was quite shocked when I found the case 
where a gastro chain pub had required a gay employee to stand outside their pub with an advert because they traditionally this particular pub had been used by the gay community quite a lot and the new owners wanted to diversify they actually made this chap stand outside the pub with this is not a gay pub sandwich board um so i kid you not there was a case um about that but apart from that not a huge amount of activity um why might that be well i can't remember the last time somebody phoned me and said i want to bring a case of sexual orientation discrimination or i think i've been discriminated against because of who i am unlike you know disability discrimination people phone me about that all the time and say i think my rights as a disabled person are being you know not looked after or um maybe you know sex discrimination people will ring me and and you know talk to me you know about that quite quickly what i tend to find is that i might have long conversation with somebody about all the difficulties that they've had in work it might be a challenging relationship with the manager it might be sort of grievance material if you like but quite often it's only at the end of you know an hour hour and a half conversation that somebody will just slip in to the conversation that their partner is perhaps the same gender as them or something like that that makes me think oh could this be an angle in this case is that what's really going on so i think people perhaps if they aren't experiencing a great employment experience they're more likely to go off and get another job somewhere else and you're going to lose that person than perhaps them kick off about it and complain in work or bring a case about it so in terms of this whole topic area it's not as high on the list of worrying about getting sued for it topics um i think it's more um other other reasons that we need to be concerned if we're not aware of somebody having a bad experience in the workplace if that uh, if that makes sense of course there's always an element as well that the good cases don't get reported because if somebody has for example um received harassment in the workplace and they have complained about it then i would have thought those cases would fall in that very high percentage if you speak to acas about cases that have been settled um i think early conciliation they think they get rid of 63% of cases and they've recently published some stats i think for last year where they've said that only 7% of early conciliation cases actually make it to a final tribunal hearing which is a phenomenal statistic and should make all of us in hr feel more confident about defending our positions but 
clearly if somebody has been subject to treatment which is something that they shouldn't have in work quite often those cases will have settled and we won't get to read about them because of course you know um confidentiality non-disclosure agreements gagging gagging clauses will apply to that uh, so we never get to hear about it now before today's session i was talking to chelsea from yoke just about what the what the current uh recruitment market is like and she was telling me how busy they are at yoke and how we're very much in an employee led market at the moment and as a result of that what employees want is um becoming very very important and perhaps employers are playing a bit of catch up here to um to realize that and are having to look at their proposition if you like their shop window how are they attracting candidates and, and what are they saying to them um what are those people hearing about them so i can see a real dovetail between what chelsea was just saying about the the employment market and this topic area because um surveys still tell us that over a third of people that fall into the lgbtq plus community are still hiding their identity at work so they are um for a whole host of reasons not being able to be their authentic selves in their working environment and um you know i can only imagine what the toll is on somebody of doing that um those of you who've known me for a long time have probably known that i i've got more and more outrageous more and more colorful um and more and more of a maverick over the 20 years that you've probably all known me i can't imagine trying to fit into a box that i you know i don't fit into um so i can only uh, only imagine that and and the knock-on effects on things like performance because if we're spending our energy on other things like hiding who we are then we're not going to be performing to our best capabilities are we so um you know we're thinking about that in terms of a, a wider issue so as i said today i'm going to look at the themes from cases some recent developments in this area and then start talking about some of the things that i think employers can be can be doing um the lgbqt plus um sort of label obviously keeps getting longer um it's very easy to get caught up in in labels here and language and are we using the right terms and those sorts of things and the quote that i've put at the top of this slide language is really important but it isn't human experience um is a quote from somebody who i'm going to mention a little bit later um who is a sort of non-binary activist and um i think the point being made is that yes it is important to get labels correct um and to use terminology that people are happy with but equally um 
it is more important that we are giving people a good human experience and that they um, are feeling happy in work and psychological safety is something we've all learnt a huge amount about through COVID and perhaps being put in situations where we haven't felt psychologically safe um, that we should now all empathise with that a lot more and understand that a lot more um, that sometimes I think we can dwell too much on labels and we can um, we can forget you know being valued um, and feeling comfortable in the culture and um, obviously the two can go together um, but I don't want people to get too bogged down on on the labels but having said that um, I will just try and explain some of the, the jargon and the labels um, so that we're all singing off the same um, hymn sheet. So non-binary as, as the first label, um, that would be somebody who doesn't identify as either male or female, they identify as both. Um, the particular person who made the quote uh, would categorise themselves in that category and would um, use the pronouns they or them. In terms of trans, the T part of our LGBTQT, um, that would be where somebody's birth certificate says one particular gender, but they are now living as another gender. Um, it used to be the case that our legislation would only protect somebody if they were undergoing a medicalised process to change um, from the gender that was on their birth certificate. Um, that's now quite an old idea um, and the law does now extend to living as the, uh, the new gender. Intersex would be a label for those who have both male and female biological characteristics. But of course, they might may identify because there's a difference perhaps between what the body's doing and, and what they identify with as either male or female or non-binary when it comes to their gender. In terms of our legislation, Traditionally, the Equality Act, protected characteristics, our protected characteristics have focused on gender reassignment and gender, perhaps, well, indeed, failing our non-binary friends or um, the intersex community, um, but you'll see when I come on to talk about one of the cases in a little while, that our judges are recognising that the world has moved on and that everyone is much more aware of these distinctions and we're starting to see our law widening, widening and wrapping its arms around a, a wider um, group of people. Um, not quite there yet when it comes to the intersex community, um, that's not to say that you can't, in your policies and the way you behave, do the right thing and make sure that the language that you use and the examples that you give in policies and things 
actually do embrace the full diversity of people that we might be uh, might be talking about. In terms of pan, pansexual, now we're talking more about orientation. And of course, sexual orientation has been protected by our legislation since the late 90s. Um, whether somebody is straight, whether somebody is lesbian, gay, bi, asexual or ace as the language sometimes is termed. Pan would refer to somebody who has romantic or sexual attraction um, to others that's not limited by gender. So for them it's not about gender when they are attracted to somebody. And of course gender fluid, somebody's identities may change over time. Um, so I think the important thing is to remember that it isn't just about labelling, it is about making sure we deal with human beings at the end of, end of the day. In terms of our legislation, as I mentioned, the Equalities Act is, is the legislation that we have. Um, and it does tend to focus in on specific things in terms of protected characteristics. It's worth noting when it comes to things like sexual orientation, that it's not necessarily about the sexual orientation of your employee. So, for example, if I was your employee and I was in an environment where there was a lot of banter around um, sexual orientation, I could complain to you if I felt that that was creating a hostile working environment for me, not necessarily in relation to my own sexual orientation, but perhaps um, I have a child who is gay and I wanted to um, complain because I was finding it offensive, the things that people were saying from that perspective. So it's, it doesn't have to be my sexual orientation that I'm complaining about. As I said, in terms of gender reassignment, the law is broader now. It isn't just about undergoing some kind of medicalised process. It is about how somebody chooses to, um, to you know, live their lives in terms of things like how they dress. Um, it's interesting though, because the more you delve into the topic area, if you think about it, as a society, we have quite fixed ideas about, certainly in the West, about who would wear makeup, who would wear a dress, who would wear a skirt, what are female qualities, what men look like, all of those sorts of concepts. And the more you talk to people who are non-binary, who don't accept those labels, the more you understand that actually a lot of our constructs, if you like, are based on real gender stereotyping anyway. Um, and 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 really ought to be blown blown out of the water. Um, so, you know, the law is a bit of a blunt tool, and it is protecting those who choose to live in in a different gender to the one that they were were born in. 
And um, there is legislation also dealing with where somebody has legally paid and obtained a gender recognition certificate to change their birth certificate from that gender that they were, were born into. Um, it creates a strict liability offence. So that means you can't just argue, you know, we had the best of intentions when we did something. If you have um, revealed that somebody was originally a different gender to the one that they now live in as a result of having this certificate, it would be a criminal offence. So there are circumstances, for example, where your IT department might have to delete data relating to somebody because otherwise people could find out about somebody's change in their gender, if that makes sense. Um, there is guidance on all of this. The um, Government Equalities Office um, guidance booklet on trans um, or gender reassignment is really useful. So if you ever need to read up on it, I'd, I'd suggest um, looking at that. So um, worth knowing that that protection is there. Now, obviously, if somebody comes to you to be employed by you and they are presenting to you as female or male or non-binary, then to some extent, the history doesn't matter to you, but it can be a problem for an employer who has commenced employment of somebody in one gender and then they get a gender recognition certificate and then you have to make that transition to them being a different gender. Obviously, that employer has lots of information perhaps that it then has to really guard because of this criminal offence. In terms of themes in the in the case law, um, you probably wouldn't be surprised for me to say that one of the major themes is around um, homophobic banter in the workplace. And the challenge obviously for the employer here is they're not always in control of their employees and the conversations that are happening. Um, the case that I've referred to on the slides um, it's over 10 years old now, but it illustrated that point that I was saying earlier about um, it not needing to be my sexual orientation in order to bring a complaint. Um, in, the, in the particular case, the employee had been subject to um, banter for a long time about whether he was straight or gay and to some extent had kind of played along with it, which you all know from sexual harassment training and things, um, just because um, somebody has, hasn't objected doesn't mean that it's acceptable. Um, and, you know, he'd almost made jokes at his own expense sort of thing in the workplace. But quite often with people with harassment, you'll find there's a tipping point. And in this particular case, the tipping point was a Staff Magazine article. Um, that he'd taken, obviously, the magazine home and sh his wife saw it. 
um, and was seriously unimpressed by the banter. Um, so, you know, you have to be aware that this is always problematic and the fact that, you know, somebody hasn't objected for many years might not mean it's not a problem. Um, the classic problem in banter cases is number one, the employee saying, oh, it's just a bit of fun. But also it's the sort of typical line manager response that I get, which is, oh, well, it's he said, she said, or or whatever. You know, we can't really prove what happened in the room. We weren't there. Um, you know, different people have got different accounts of what was said. Kind of a dismissive, if you like, attitude towards these things. And I just think we're coming to a place now in the workplace in general where I think with Me Too, with Black Lives Matter, with all the discussion that's been had in the last few years around sort of wider issues of harassment, we're coming to a place now where if somebody is complaining about something, you know, employees don't generally complain and raise grievances because it's not generally a good idea because it starts breaking down the employment relationship. So if somebody is bringing something to us, if somebody is saying something's happened, why don't we just try starting off from a perspective of let's believe that this has happened and see where that takes us? I'm not saying that there aren't people out there who are vexatious because occasionally that happens. But I think quite often there's a, a an almost too high a threshold put on believing somebody that there's a problem. And actually, if we flipped our culture around to say, let's believe people if they say they're hurt by something, and let's work from that starting point, I think we would transform our workplace cultures, if that makes sense. I think we would do a better job um, in the long run. Um, and, and, and that might mean that we are disciplining colleagues for inappropriate comments and behaviours, but it's not going to change unless we tackle it. And, you know, we know that from all the other um, areas of harassment that, that we, we've spoken about. The other quite common theme, which really does depress me when I um, look at this, is around colleagues being outed in the workplace when they don't want that to happen. We talked at the beginning, didn't we, about a third, over a third of people are, are not being their authentic selves in the workplace. And looking back over the cases, I'm shocked by how many times it's the HR department that are the source of the problem. So sometimes it might be that an employee has filled out a next of kin form and, you know, put their partner down or you know, a form for the pension or something like that and revealed, therefore, some information. And gossip has kind of 
happened as a result of that. And that's just depressing for a community that, quite frankly, we should know better than that and confidentiality, etc. Um, but that theme is is there in, in the cases. So I've mentioned there that, you know, just HR or line managers revealing somebody's sexual orientation. Um, as a result of that, in the cases quite often, you know, my job was going fine. Um, I was performing well or my appraisal said I was brilliant until such time as I believe my manager then told my colleagues or something like that. Um, and then I started to be excluded or um, I wasn't put forward for training or, you know, I was made redundant. You know, those are the sorts of things that come out in, in, in the cases. Um, there is, as we've already said, the link with the sort of harassment and acceptable behaviour type um, issues as well alongside those those types of discrimination um but one of the staggering themes and i probably see this more you know i'm always reading about companies organizations handling things badly but there seems to be an even higher threshold of bad um treatment or or negligence in the way complaints are dealt with when it comes to this topic area so HR the leadership in organizations when they do have a complaint then handling it spectacularly um, badly so you know there is a real link here between this as a subject area and things like decent investigations training for managers and making sure that those who are dealing with grievances just know what to do. Um, definitely seeing seeing that. And um, when it comes to the trans community, again, it's kind of as old as the hills, really. A lot of a lot of the cases will focus on trans people being required to use the disabled toilets. Um, those of you who've been around as long as me will remember perhaps there was a Royal Mail case of Croft um, quite a long time ago now where they did not find that it was discrimination for uh, Croft to be required to use the disabled toilets. But that is I would say ancient history now. Um, if you look at the Government Equalities Office guidance that I referred you to earlier, that would say that a trans person has to be free to select the facilities that are appropriate to their gender, as in the one that they are presenting to you, um, and that they should be entitled to use those facilities. ACAS again would say the same thing. Um, that they shouldn't be required to use the disabled toilets. So I think um, you can't rely on that Croft decision now. It would not be decided in the same way um, today. Indeed, um, I'm going to go on to talk about Taylor and Jaguar Land Rover in a minute. And um, 
that was an issue in that particular case as well. Um, so, yes, it is something that can cause tension in the workplace, but it is really clear that we need to be um, treating someone in all respects as the gender that they present to in the workplace. I've actually met somebody who is transgender who earns her living by going to big companies and she will turn up at reception and she will see how she is treated. And if she is directed, for example, to the wrong facilities when she asks to use the bathroom, she will actually go and speak to the senior leadership team about um, her perceived, you know, her perceptions about um, being treated in the wrong way and use it in a positive, not to not to beat them over the head with it, but to say, look, I think you need some training here. Um, this is what I can do. I can come in and work with your community on this subject. So um, just be aware that the law is in, in that place. So um, I mentioned the Taylor case. Um, and I mentioned that our judges are sort of expanding our law to fit um, all the different labels. And this is what happened in this particular case. So it's a Birmingham Employment Tribunal case. And um, Taylor worked for Jaguar Land Rover for many, many years and started life, as you might imagine, in a male dominated working environment as a man. Um, later on during his career decided to transition uh, back in 2017 and began wearing female clothes some days and was harassed by colleagues when dressed in female mode. Taylor now uses female pronouns and initially management was supportive but she began to receive harassing comments including being called it. She was asked whether her clothes were a Halloween costume when she spoke to HR about the situation, the attitude was, well, what do you expect people to call you? Um, HR very much took the, well, unless you are prepared to name names, we're not prepared to do anything about it type of policy. Um, so I think that's a, a, a learning point that sometimes if people aren't prepared to put themselves in further vulnerability in the workplace by having named names that doesn't mean as an organization we can't do something there are always other ways of skinning the cat aren't there sometimes it's a it's it's something as simple as putting some an article or a video on your internet just to get people thinking about a subject area it can be reminding people about what our policies say when it comes to harassment um it doesn't necessarily have to be singling out people out for an investigation obviously we can't do that if people haven't given us names but doesn't mean we can't do anything things seem to have broken down um at the point that taylor asked if 
Pride Week could be acknowledged um, when the line manager just laughed at that idea and she became ill and eventually resigned and brought both discrimination and constructive dismissal cases. Um, it's taken a, a while to get through the court system. One of the things that the court had to do was ask itself, in the light of what I was telling you about our Equality Act definitions, was could our legislation protect somebody um, who was more gender fluid, more gender neutral, um, and ultimately the judges decided that it could. And the way that they did that, because there's always a tension for the judges, they have to make sure that they don't um, don't get they don't get accused of legislating themselves. So obviously, Parliament is our our, our legislator. But the, the way they did it is they went back to the original discussions in Parliament when the 2010 legislation was going through um, and some of the quotes of, of what people said at the time, there'd been talk about moving away from someone's birth sex, moving gender identity away from birth sex. So this idea of more of a spectrum when it comes to gender, they basically said our, um, our legislation can encapsulate that so Jaguar Land Rover came out of this case looking really awful, um, particularly because, of course, they're you know a household name, large employer, but essentially none of the managers had been given any training. Um, nothing had been done to educate the workforce. The toilet issues that I talked about had, had arisen, and um, they were really criticised for how they'd handled the whole thing. And Taylor won over £180,000. Um, there was a 20% uplift for not following the grievance procedure. And what we call aggravated damages, which is kind of an extra um, penalty from the judges, where they felt there'd been a real disregard for this employee's well-being, essentially. Voluntarily, Jaguar Land Rover, perhaps realising that they needed to um, change things dramatically, have, they've, they've put themselves forward or agreed to having an external body examine all their diversity practices and being subject to sort of audit and reporting for a five-year period um, whilst they turn things around. Um, obviously, it's been hailed by the charities that work with people from the LGBT community as a real landmark decision, but I think it just shows how much society has changed, that our law, the judges felt that it was appropriate to do that. But of course, we get tension in the other direction. And I'm sure you will have picked up on JK Rowling having got herself into massive trouble um, on Twitter for saying that she stood with Mayor Forstatter, who has uh, brought her case through the courts. So she worked for a not-for-profit think tank and 
had beliefs that essentially amounted to a lack of belief in gender identity being a thing. She said, and I quote, a man's internal feeling that he is a woman has no basis in material reality. This put her on a collision course with her employer who felt that it was inappropriate to renew her appointment with them um, because of the sorts of things that she was espousing, particularly publicly on, on the internet. So she brought a claim not under the um, sexual orientation side of things, but under the religion and belief side of things under the Equality Act, saying, well, hang on a minute, I've got this belief, I deserve to have my belief protected. And the courts then applied the same test that they've had to apply in other cases about belief. So you might remember the cases about environmental issues or vegans or um, people with political views. And you might remember that the test that the courts have to apply is, is this belief worthy of protection in, um, in a democratic society? And essentially, the way that our law works in this area is that the courts will pretty much protect most beliefs as long as they're fairly sensible. Um, you know, you're not going to get protection if if you're a Nazi or if you're, um, I don't know, believing that Martians are going to land tomorrow. But pretty much everything else is going to get covered. Now, just because the law protects you in terms of having the belief doesn't mean that you can claim discrimination, however, because obviously that's the second sort of hurdle that somebody would have to come over, come over. But pretty much we've got this kind of broad freedom of expression, because um, of course we've got the European Convention on Human Rights that gives us that human right as well. Um, so the law protects free speech. But of course, when it comes to the workplace, it's how you express those beliefs that can then put you in, in a problematic position. So, um, for example, your employer might have a pronoun policy. You might have noticed lots of people um, changing their email footers. I think the Scottish government are just about to do this to say what pronouns somebody would, um, would go by. Um, if an employer has got that kind of policy, and you have an employee saying, well, I don't believe in that. What is the law going to do then? Or if, in the case of somebody like Maya Forstatter, because of her beliefs, she might say, well, you want to be treated as, um, as, a, a, as a female, but I'm going to refuse to acknowledge that. And I'm going to still call you him or you know, you've changed your name from Brian to Bryony, I'm going to still call you Brian. Um, that's sometimes called dead naming or misgendering. How is the law going to deal with that? Well, I think if, if you've done it and you've done it and it's an accidental thing, so um, I know you've changed your name, I know you've changed your gender, but I mistakenly, because of habit perhaps, because I've worked with you for a long time, I get it wrong and I use your old name or you use your old gender, I'm probably not going to be guilty of anything. But if we've got a policy, if we've set out in our 
um, handbook that we need to respect somebody's gender. And I refuse to use the right pronouns because I don't believe in it, then I may then be causing harassment of the individual um, who's um, perhaps going to be upset by the way in which I've behaved. So, yes, it puts a collision course potentially between people on, on the basis of their beliefs, but the employer is entitled to say, you can have your beliefs, I'm not stopping you believing in what you believe in, but when you're in the workplace, I want you to treat everyone with dignity and respect, and that includes behaving in this particular way, or not mocking people for what they're wearing, or laughing at people, um, etc. So, for example, I may say I don't believe that uh, Taylor should be allowed to use the female bathroom. I may say that indirectly discriminates me because I don't believe in it. Yes, I might be at a disadvantage, but when it comes to the second test of indirect discrimination, am I following a is it a proportionate way of me achieving a legitimate aim of respecting everybody in the workplace? The courts are likely to find in favour of the employer. Of course, one of the areas that is ripe for sort of battleground at the moment, and you sort of certainly been lots of coverage of this issue, is around single sex facilities and um, you know the, the Equality Act protection for people who need to use services classic one being um, women's refuge, for example, on a single sex basis, clashing with the fact that once you've become a, law, a, a female in the law, then you, the law would say you're entitled to use those services. Um, what I would say is that a lot of the hot air that gets generated around that topic area is not based on any evidence. And um, people would have to show that there was some evidence that allowing somebody who used to be a man was more likely to cause a problem in uh, same-sex service provision, etc. There's been a recent race case that I think is relevant to employers dealing with harassment cases and defending them, and that uh, case really highlighted that the courts were not impressed if we didn't keep people's diversity and equalities training really fresh. So in that particular case, colleagues hadn't challenged harassment when it was happening around them. And um, the managers didn't take it seriously when there'd been a complaint, all the things that we've been talking about earlier and there was evidence that diversity training had been given two years ago but the judges felt well it clearly was no good because it didn't equip your staff to behave appropriately when these issues emerged so unless you can show that it's recent and unless you can show that it is actually changing the way things are done around here then it's probably um not going to be that that helpful so um when did you last do training for your staff? Was it any good? Can you document how it is changing things in your workplace? Or is this an issue you, you know, needs to go on the to-do list now? 
So what other things can we be doing? Um, communication should be your number one to do for absolutely everything. Anything that you phone me about, communication is the most important thing. And it's the thing that I'm really finding, perhaps as a result of homeworking and people being more remote from each other, that people just don't want to do at the moment. So I suggest to a line manager, they might like to talk to their employee about something and they freak out entirely. Um, but communication is really, really important. Have we actually asked our staff, what can we do here in this organisation to make our working environment more inclusive? You might be quite surprised on what comes back if you ask the question. You'll note at the beginning of today's session, I said, hello, everyone. I didn't say, ladies and gentlemen, um, can we become more mindful of the language that we use and whether it is inclusive or not? I'm definitely moving towards documenting things like employment contracts, saying the language of you and us rather than things like he and she. I was really heartened last month when my husband interrupted us watching the telly one night and said, oh, I've had a message from one of my ex-work colleagues. He's now working somewhere where there is a pronoun policy and he's asked me a question about what this all means. And so they've been having a chat. These are two blokes, you know, who wouldn't normally be having conversations about anything to do with diversity and equality, having a discussion about what pronouns mean. I just thought that was absolutely fantastic that, you know, one of them was just checking in with the other one that his understanding was right and he was going to do the right thing in the workplace. I thought it was fantastic. Have we audited our policies and procedures to check that we are recognising the right people in our community so for example things like our maternity and paternity leave policies have we acknowledged that families come in different shapes and sizes in in the language that we use and in the provisions that we make so you could have a birth mother with two fathers or birth mother her partner and a father you could end up employing all of these people so have we broadened that out? Things like our bereavement leave policy, who have we acknowledged as family? And, you know, when we say how many days somebody can have off if somebody's died, you know, do we recognise the relationships that people might be in in a way that is going to be meaningful for them? Or have we stuck to something quite old fashioned? We may decide to have a, a, a pronoun policy. We talked about that um, already. Um, have we tackled in our anti-bullying and harassment policies examples of the sorts of things we've been talking about this morning? Or, as is quite often the case when I'm reviewing handbooks, you'll look at the list of what is supposed to be harassment and it's quite focused on perhaps sexual harassment or 
maybe racial har harassment, but doesn't cover disability harassment, doesn't cover harassment from perspective of sexual orientation or people um, who are trans. So it might be worth just next time you are reading through your policies and things, just, just having a think about the language that you use and whether you are covering everybody. Um, in terms of being an ally, um, I know a number of you will have seen John Amici when he did his CIPD um, talk about being a good ally from a from a race perspective and I think a lot of what he said there transfers over into to this area as well the, the one thing that stood out for me when he was talking um, he was using the example of um, you know if you're at a family dinner and you, your uncle um, comes out with um, what is essentially a racist comment and everyone just sort of sits there and, and squirms but doesn't tackle that person because oh well you know it's just uncle john he always you know he's of that generation he always says those sorts of things um are you the person in the workplace who is complicit if something is going on or are you the person who stands up and says i'm not going to tolerate this comment being made in the workplace and stands up for your colleagues who may not feel able to say something um, in that room. And it's not just about, you know, flagging up harassment. It can be as simple as when people are being gaslit in meetings, you know, when people are being talked over, um, noticing that that is what's going on and maybe just say, well, I agree with what Tom said earlier or, you know, Joe raised a good point earlier and just, you know, drawing attention to the person who is perhaps um, not being valued through those sorts of less obvious um, actions. We started the session talking about um, yoke really putting some attention on this area throughout the year, not just acknowledging Pride Month um, or a particular day. Um, certainly networks and visibility, some of the public sector organisations that I, I, I go to from time to time, you know, just what you'll see on the walls, um, you know, the rainbow flag being used, um, what's being celebrated in that organisation, you immediately get a real sense of if I was from that community I'd feel comfortable in this environment because that visibility is there and um, that might be around your leaders being visible in an organisation as well. Do we collect the right data in our organisation? Um, do we know who we're recruiting? Um, and who actually makes it through the process. Do we know who stays? Do we know who leaves? Um, do we know who raises a grievance? Do we know how we handle those grievances and what our stats around that are? Um, obviously, it can be quite a sensitive issue to be gathering data on. It may be something that you need to engage a third party organisation who is very practised at working in this area to get better disclosures um from people but if we don't monitor it if we don't measure it then we're not going to do anything about it so that might be something as a topic area to 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 think about um 
I've got to be a bit of a bee in my bonnet at the moment around grievances and complaint handling from employees, essentially, because, you know, if it was a customer complaining, we would jump up and down and, and, and do something. Why, when the mental health of our staff is at risk, are we so horrific at how we deal with grievances and organisations? Um, I don't know what all the answers on that are. I'm hoping that one day I'm going to have a profound light bulb moment and come up with some idea as a, of a system that we can use that's different or better. But we've got to improve the way in which we we, we deal with these issues because of the, the impact that it has on people's um, mental health. In the... Taylor Jaguar Land Rover case, the judge kind of went off on a bit of a spiel and it was quite um, it was quite moving about um, we can all recall a teacher who made a profound difference in our lives and went on to talk about people who made the world a better and more equal place. So Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Tani Gray Thompson, and then went to talk about this particular individual who'd worked at, at Jaguar Land Rover and, and said that, you know, for the claimant, the claim had obviously been made at great personal cost, but that the judge anticipated that the claimant would probably also nominate their legal representatives um, in turn as somebody who had made a great difference. Um, to them. So I would say to you, what are you going to do in your workplace to be that person that the judge was talking about um, and uh, to, to be seen to, to make a difference on, on these things. In terms of um, further reading, I've put a link there to um, a really good article on why it's so important to use the correct um, gender pronouns in the workplace. Um, you'll notice that I've not used the term preference because it's not a preference. Somebody's gender pronoun is their pronoun. Um, the chap that I mentioned earlier, Jeffrey Marsh, is quite a famous um, US non-binary activist. He's got a fab Facebook um, feed if you feel the desire to have some very colourful um, posts arriving in your Facebook feed, I've found it very instructive um, to, to, to just listen to stuff that he talks about. You know, often it's about dealing with trauma in families or what's going on for kids at school and, and things like that. But I think sometimes we only learn about stuff by by just experiencing what other people's lived experience is um and he can will definitely assist you um in in that regard i also just wanted to um mention very briefly at the end here uh what's going on in relation to our law in general when it comes to sexual harassment because i think if we look at the direction of travel, we might find that if what the government's talking about doing when it comes to sexual harassment is successful, 
we've seen this in other areas, haven't we? We've got, you know, gender pay um, reporting. Now we're talking about ethnic pay reporting. Um, that we may find the law being extended to our LGBTQT community as well. So as a result of some of the stuff that's come out around Me Too, and I know we've already got the harassment provisions in the Equality Act, but the government has taken evidence and has decided to um, beef up our law and put a much more positive preventative duty on employers. And they've come out recently in the last couple of months and said, we are going to be legislating on this. Um, they've spoken about, um, in terms of this preventative duty, I think that the language that's being used is that the employer will take all reasonable steps. Now, of course, you're going to say, well, what does that mean? Undoubtedly, it's going to be training. And regular training by the sounds of that tribunal case we were just talking about on race, um, having an effective mechanism for complaints to be dealt with, um, having a culture where it's made clear that it's unacceptable to do these things, um, you know, building it into your induction programmes, complaints being taken seriously, if necessary, disciplinary action being taken with real leadership from the top. So if we think about that, why can't we do the same things in this area? As part of that um, change, there is discussion about extending the time limit for claims under the Equality Act. Equality Act. It's three months at the moment. Um, talk about making it six. As soon as you start to talk about just sexual harassment, for example, why wouldn't you then extend it to other protected characteristics or why wouldn't you then extend it to all claims under the Equality Act so that you know women who are made redundant on maternity leave for example have longer to be able to bring their claim so I think we are going to see change um, in that in that area so just be aware that that um, is happening now I'm going to try and Put everyone back see if we've got any questions in the in the chat function or whether you're just waiting to save your questions till now has anyone got any thoughts questions points they'd like to make um one point from me anna is less of a question and just um a point um nikki mentioned that she was uh, recording our latest podcast episode and she had a really good chat with Denise Currell um, from Careers Wales and um, one of the things that they were discussing um, which feeds into what you mentioned about thinking about the language that you use and the way you um, talk about things um, was in recruitment processes as well and just making sure that your recruitment processes are inclusive as possible and the language that you're using in job adverts. Um, after listening to it I never really thought about it before but when you really look through the job adverts you start to notice really masculine language which can off which can off put people or vice versa um, if adverts are um, more feminine then you might put people off so it's always good to bear in mind like the way you're using your language not just with your current employees but the way you're kind of marketing yourself and trying to get new people in and being as inclusive as possible so you're yeah kind of appealing to everyone 
good, yeah, absolutely good point. There has been lots of research over the years, whether it's sex, whether it's age is another issue, even even disability language can put people off. So, yeah. On that note, um, I have a website that I try to use um, whether I'm posting all my things, and it's um, I think it's a, a gender decoder. Um, and you can basically post your job advert in that and it will tell you if your ad has a gender bias or not and if you know you're using more masculine language more feminine language and stuff would you like me to put that in the chat in case people yeah want to I think that would, be, that would be really useful absolutely yeah it's something my, my friend showed me and it yeah definitely shows a, a nice way and it, sh it shows you kind of what you can do to improve it or make it better so that's in the meeting chat now yeah and I see somebody's, you, somebody's, somebody's pointed that out that some employers really are hurt, you know, hurtful to people. And I think I see both in, in, in what I do. I see lots of really good practice. And then, of course, because of what I do, I tend to see the bad as well um, with people, um, you know, sharing the disasters. But I think we have moved in positive ways forward. It's always a journey. There's always more we can be doing. There's always better that we can be doing. But I'd like to think that things are improving, just perhaps not everywhere all at the same time. Julian's posted that the Harvard implicit, implicit association test is also really helpful to understand, understand any unconscious biases we have. Yes, absolutely. Um, worth worth checking out. Um, worth checking out that one. So, Robin, what are you going to say? Uh, yeah. So, um, my point or question is that some words specifically queer has um, like a bit of a heavy history and it's been reclaimed. So I personally prefer to use the term queer, um, though I understand that not as many people would like to or have history with that particular word that they don't like it. So what, what would be your recommendation with people who have that history with the term and don't prefer yeah. that? Yeah, I, it's a really well made point and I think you're absolutely right and I think that just ties in with what I was saying earlier that we can get so tied up with labels and not wanting to offend people and even when we do pick labels that we think are safe unwittingly offend you know if I was to use the word queer and there have to be somebody who perhaps remembered some of the negative connotations from the past they might not like it um I think we can get so sort of tied up in all of that that actually is the label important or is how we treat each other important and for lots of reasons I am I, at the moment I'm just quite often telling people to be kind <laughs> um, and this is a you know a general thing whether it's you know Covid we're talking about or whatever um, you know, we've just seen, haven't we, in the last two years, the need for us to be kind to each other. And sometimes if you're not sure, then ask the other person and say, you know, tell me if you don't, if I use the wrong language or tell me if you prefer that I said something else instead. 
you know, we just need to have that conversation. We need to be talking to each other, but, but we're not very good at it at the moment. Yeah, so somebody, we got a man working in a female-oriented environment who's all too aware of the non-inclusive language we sometimes use. Brilliant, Julian, thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. And we all, we all even do it without even thinking. Um, I'm aware earlier, because as soon as it came out of my mouth, I thought, ooh. I called Jeffrey Marsh him, and he's not, he's they. And I know that, but it just slipped out because it's habit. I've got a transgender nephew and very occasionally I'll pick the wrong Christian name and use the former Christian name because that person was the former Christian name for 12 years. But I hope that person understands that there is just that synapses in the brain thing, not an intentional slur or to upset when I do it. Anyone else got any questions? What anyone want to tell give us some examples of something that they've they've done in their organization recently that they felt has been a successful um step forward, if you like, on the journey that we're all on. The the good thing I I think I have this theory and you guys in recruitment you, you'll tell me if you think this is true. Um a, we've got the recruitment market that Chelsea talked about, but also we've got a much more broad age range in the workforce now. And we've got people coming in to the work generations now who've grown up with a much more inclusive friendship group at school where people are much more comfortable being themselves, etc. When none of this, that's anybody's eyelids, you know, they they, they just... They accept people for who they are, um, whether it's race or disability or orientation or other things that we're talking about. And that that has to be a really good thing because you've got people coming into the workplace who are going to change the fossils at the top or the fossils who are there who perhaps come from an earlier age. I think one of the things that I've seen that works really well at um, other companies that I've worked at as well is... Uh, something that you touched on with setting up the LGBTQ networks. So like the employee networks, and even if it's just a network with two people in it, shows that um, understanding of it and improves the visibility and uh, like the activities that they push then as a as a group within the, within the company always does a really good job, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From a recruiter's perspective, I think it's always um, really good to see, you know, when a client reaches out to us to say, you know, we need some support with you with these, you know, certain campaign. What's your objective in this area and how can we support it? And, you know, clients often reach out to us and say, you know, we're looking, you know, we really want to improve this particular, you know, demographic or this particular um, thing within our workforce. How can you help us with that? And I think so just be honest with the guys that, you know, that are supporting you. And if you're using agencies, ask what they can do to help you if you are, you know, at the start of that journey. Yeah. Next session is going to be on. I wrote it down earlier. Was it the 24th? We're chatting about the 24th of November. Yeah. 24th of November. Yeah. So um, we don't have a topic yet. Um, I'm super keen to do one on the environment myself. I know you've done 
previous webinars on that, Anna, haven't you? So you've got content yeah. on it. Um, I had an interesting experience doing yeah. this. So I thought, okay, I'll, you know, I think this is a relevant thing that HR should be worrying about because, you know, perhaps their organisation is committed to coming net zero or, or whatever and starting to think about it. And I only had three people come forward for, you know, normally I'd get sort of 25, 30 people coming forward. So I thought it was interesting that in terms of people's priorities, it's obviously not there yet. But I can understand that because everyone's too busy trying to work out what the furlough rules are or whether they pay this person sick pay or not. Um, but we should all be thinking about it. And there are things that you can be doing in HR to start helping your organisation on its journey to becoming less impactful from an environmental perspective. So um, I'm very happy to talk about that if everyone else thinks it's it's worth talking about. That's the, yeah, my topic thrown in the ring. <laughs> That's what I'm pushing for. If people like the idea of it, maybe they could do like a hands up or something in, in the chat box. Um, yeah. And I can always, uh, I'll be sharing all of these materials anyway after the uh, webinar. So then I can always do like a little feedback form there. And if anyone wants to submit, other ideas for other topics or they want to agree on potentially looking at a climate environmental one for November that would be great we have a quick question that I've just seen come up before we wrap it up um from Kazul how, ca how can we help someone who's discriminated by the homophobic employer um I mean that's such a massive question yeah. <laughs> um, I'd need a bit more context really I think primary thing if somebody comes to you like I said earlier and confides and says that they're struggling with a manager or they're struggling with certain things in the workplace is to not dismiss or belittle what they're saying in any way and to say okay I believe you what would you like to happen to, to resolve this because quite often people just want behaviors to stop or an apology and behaviors to stop and to move forward in a positive way it isn't about falling out it isn't about lengthy grievances it isn't about you know a negative thing it can be relatively simple to address and we just are really bad at doing that so think about informal resolutions before whipping out the grievance procedure i think cool well yeah i'll say goodbye again and thank you everyone and um, i'll be in touch with all the materials and thanks again anna lovely have a good day everybody bye thanks anna. Bye. thank bye. you bye, bye.